1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to read to you, read with you down to uh, verse 11. It says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. We uh, come to this awesome passage of scripture this morning, Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here, and really it's like, this is up there in the chapters in the Bible, maybe the chapters of the New Testament, if you collect your kind of top 10, this should be there. It should be. It's like in there with Romans 8 and the great faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, or the love chapter that we looked at a few weeks back, 1 Corinthians 13, or some other ones that you might love. For me, I love John chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 15 ranks right there. It's right there with all of the awesome chapters of the Bible. And as we've been going through this letter and Paul's discussion, um, the things that he's been addressing with the Corinthian church, He's addressed so many issues, like, you know, so let's just hit, here's a quick reminder this morning, okay? He revealed to them the, the emptiness um, of their supposed philosophy and brilliance and intelligentsia in the Greek culture. He taught, to them, he taught them that proclaiming uh, Christ and him crucified was the wisdom of God, that that was true wisdom. He preached the message of the cross. He applied the message of the cross to every error in their church. He just said the, the, the solution is the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. We return to the cross. And after covering all the issues surrounding their carnality, their worldliness, the, their struggle in, in living for the Lord, he began to, in the last few chapters we've seen, starting at chapter uh, 12, address them as spiritual people. Like saying, let's move beyond worldly stuff and talk about real spiritual things. And so from chapter 11, we've kind of seen this change in the theme of the letter. And, and Paul has been addressing spiritual things instead of worldly things. He's talking about gifts of the Spirit. Talked about um, unity and diversity in the body. Of course, uh, the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 Last week, we, last week we looked at uh, order in the church and the operation of spiritual gifts and, and, and how Paul directed that to happen. And now we come to this incredible chapter and this chapter is all about resurrection. That is the theme, the resurrection, where Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ. He talks about the resurrection of the dead. He talks about the resurrection body and 
helps us understand what that is. He talks about the victory that we have in Christ Jesus and our, that is ours in him. And so this, this section of scripture teaches us that we need to be wise about resurrection. Both for Christ and, and for the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection. Because we are people who are called not to live simply for uh, the moment. Not to live simply just for today. We're to live in, in light of and in view of eternity. And the Corinthian church, when we look at them, we know this, okay? Paul tells us this right off the hop here. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They accepted the gospel. To, to them, they, they, under, they understood that and they believed that. But the problem was, is that their culture and Greek philosophy and the Greek thinking had twisted their understanding of death had twisted their understanding of life after death, and so they were making some wrong applications in regards to the resurrection of Jesus and what that meant for them. And, you know, I was thinking, you could walk out of church this morning, if you just walked out of here at some point during your day and you just began to pull people that you crossed paths with, you just grocery store, neighbors, different people, and you randomly began to just ask them, hey man, what's your concept about death? And your concept about life after death. Like what do you think? What do you believe about that? And you just started to collect information. You would hear all sorts of responses, right? You know, it'd just be the gamut of like every, well, I believe this over here. I believe this over here. And, you know, I always, a question I love for initiating spiritual conversations with people is simply to say, hey, what are your spiritual beliefs? Boom, open door. They start they start laying it all out. But another great question to ask is, hey, what do you believe about death and life after death? And the Greek culture had a number of different beliefs that were popularized by their various schools of philosophy in regards to death and life after death. There was many Greeks that believed in Stoicism. They taught that, that the soul of a person merged uh, into deity after death. After you died. And so, you know, that's everybody. You die, we all merge and blend into this deity after, afterwards. And, and with that belief, it kind of made the concept of resurrection not important for an individual. The Epicurean philosophy was materialistic and it taught that there is no life after death. And so, you know, Epicurean, eat, live, be merry, live it up for today. Uh, the philosophy of Plato taught that the soul was immortal and, and believed in a process uh, like transmigration, like uh, reincarnation where the soul of a person passes from one physical body into a different physical body and you just are in this cycle of reincarnation. And so the Greeks had like all of these different concepts and now you imagine they've come to faith in Corinth and they're in the church and how do they apply the gospel concepts, the message of the gospel to death and resurrection and life after death? In Acts chapter 17, that famous time when Paul went to Athens and he preached at Mars Hill and he delivered the word of God there, um, he, he brought up the idea of the resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 17 verse 32 says they began to mock him and laugh at him. When they talked about resurrect, when he talked about resurrection of the dead, because it was totally foreign to Greek thinking. 
a physical resurrection of the body. And so if we were to hit the streets, you know, this morning, pull our community in regards to this subject, we'd, we'd collect a whole whack load of opinions and, and beliefs and religious beliefs and philosophies and thoughts that people have about life after death. And probably no one that you would ask would say, Al said something this morning, I said, wow, right on. He said, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Something like that off the hop there when he welcomed us this morning. And, you know, here's the thing. I think that probably only a Christian would say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. A literal resurrection. You know, some of the Corinthians believe the flesh is evil, the body is evil. And so, yeah, the soul endures the grave, but what happens to the body? And we're going to see here, uh, Paul is going to, we're going to be looking at this for a couple weeks. Paul is going to talk about a physical resurrection, just like Jesus Christ was physically raised from the dead. So you and I, after death, should the Lord tarry and we're not caught up to meet him in the air, will experience a physical, literal body resurrection. And so as Paul writes this chapter and he's going to establish for us biblical thinking, scriptural thinking, uh, he's going to answer this question, you know, for us, what do you believe about the resurrection of the dead? And my friends, I would say this to you, there is a physical resurrection of the dead. For those who have believed the good news of the gospel, the scripture says that to be absent from this body, from this tent, is to be present with the Lord. The moment life departs uh, from this tent, I am in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord also has plans for this mortal body that is dust, made of dust, that he has breathed life into. And God will breathe life into our physical frames, the physical frames of our body, and we will participate in a resurrection from the dead. And so as Paul begins this section of scripture, like I said, we're going to take a couple weeks getting through it here. Uh, he begins with this reminder, and he says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The word gospel means, what does it mean? Good news. It means good news. Anytime you hear that word gospel, think good news. And Paul says here, our good news is very specific. It's, it can be defined it can be clearly defined. It is a biblical gospel. A biblical good news. I was, I was having a conversation after church last Sunday out in the parking lot and we were just, uh, I was rapping with one of the ladies from a church here and more, you know, she was sharing with me and just expressing the situation they're going to go into and some of the beliefs that people have and that how they, they sound so wonderful like good news but then when you put your teeth into them, it's like, where's the beef, man? Where's the meat here? Is this all fluff or is there real substance here? And, and so many messages of what we might call good news lack substance. It's all fluff. Our gospel has sus substance. It has substance. This isn't a new age gospel. This isn't a strange mishmash of beliefs. Well, what do you believe about that? I don't know, you know, like, oh, we reincarnate and we this and we that. That is not the gospel, my friends. 
There are so many different beliefs and teachings that have all the appearance of good news and our gospel is good news. It is good news. And good news is specifically, Paul says, it's good news for sinners. Good news for sinners, for those who have transgressed and rebelled against their creator. It's good news. And the message of good news is this. Jesus Christ has died for your sins. And he was buried, but God raised him from the dead. And the resurrection is the receipt. It is the bill of sale. It is the invoice for the transaction that took place on that Friday when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. You know, Jesus told Martha, as they were standing outside the tomb of Lazarus and they began a discussion about the resurrection. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Paul says of the Corinthian church here at the start of this chapter, he says, you received the message. It was preached to you. It was proclaimed to you. Someone told you about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you accepted it. You stand in it. You've taken this position in your life that you said, this is my reality. Christ died for me. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead, and through him I have found life in his name. I've been forgiven of my sins. And, and the gospel is applied not only to our past sin, it's applied not only to our present day living, but Paul says there's a future application that we're to continue to hold fast to that message that we received, that we began in, that we stand in today. You know, I would say this, if someone lets go of the gospel, whatever they believed in the past, or in that right now, in, in this moment, it, it, it doesn't really do them any good if they let go in the future. It's as if Paul said they believed in vain. And, and the proof, the proof of the reality of the gospel in your life is holding on. Endurance. Uh, to the end. And for the Corinthian church, in the midst of confusion in regard to this topic of resurrection, Paul is going to point them continually here to evidence of the resurrection. Because the resurrection is, like I said, the the receipt for the transaction that happened on the cross. It's God's acknowledgement that he accepted Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins. And as Paul uh, talks about the evidence to the reality of the gospel, the first one is this. He says to the Corinthians, it's you. It's you. You receive the message. You're standing in it. You're holding fast to it. Your, your transformed life testifies to the reality of the gospel. I look around the room here this morning and I think, wow. Look at the testimony of transformed lives. Yesterday I got a, a call from my buddy, man, Jamie Berthelet. You guys remember Jamie? Yeah. Walked in here one Sunday morning, said, I don't know how I got here. Surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. <laughs> his testimony is the car kind of like drove itself here, you know. And, and he told me, oh, I preached my first sermon last month. I thought, wow, the reality of a transformed life, that's what Jesus does. 
Jesus saves, my friends. Jesus saves sinners. That is the reality of the gospel. And Paul looked at the Corinthian church. He said, wow, transformed lives. That's the proof of the gospel. He says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul lists these three facts again for us, the, the gospel. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. And my friends, those are facts. They're facts. They're indisputable, incontestable, undeniable, irrefutable, unquestionable, indubitable, unarguable, beyond doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt. They're airtight, watertight, unequivocal, unmistakable, certain, sure, definite, definitive, proven, decisive, conclusive, demonstrable, evident, clear, clear cut, plain, obvious facts of the gospel. Christ died for sinners. He was buried and he was raised from the dead, my friends. And that is good news. That is good news. And the evidence speaks for itself. Transform lives, Paul says. Look at the lives that have been changed. And we look across the millennia and we say, look at the church. Started with 12 and 120 and, and spread and is spread across the face of the, face of the earth and in, and includes billions. Transform lives. Tell us the reality of the gospel. But Paul says the second evidence is this. The scripture itself, the very word of God, is a testimony to the truth and the reality of the gospel message. So really? Was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus prophesied in the scriptures? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yes. I mean, actually, the question more is, where do you begin if you look at the scriptures? Christ died for sins. The picture of substitutionary atonement covers the pages of the entire Old Testament. Leviticus tells us the life is in the blood. Sacrifices are to be made for sinners. Blood is shed for a covering of sin. It's called atonement. God covers and he forgives. The Old Testament sacrificial system all points to Jesus. Jesus is prefigured in every burnt offering, prefigured in every sacrifice. How about the Passover, the lamb that is shed and his blood is painted over the door of the house to protect? How about Isaiah 25, Isaiah 53? Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 110, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 13. How about Jonah? Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so I will be in the belly of the earth. Isaiah said, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And the gospel tells us, the gospels tell us that he was crucified between two thieves, the wicked and he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the rich. How about the offering of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 where God said, I will provide for myself a ram. And the scripture tells us that Abraham received his son back from the dead, Isaac. And the scripture tells us that God did not spare his own son, but freely offered him for us all, that he raised him to life. And see, the reality is this, is the more you dig 
The more you dig, the more you see Jesus. The Old Testament, he's seen from front to back, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. From the Old Testament, we see the scriptures foretold that the Messiah, God's anointed, would die, he would be buried, and he would be resurrected from the dead. And then, of course, we have the New Testament accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. Paul didn't have them at the time that he's writing to the Corinthian church here. And they tell us of the fulfillment of the scriptures in regards to the death, burial, and resurrection uh, and their facts. Death on a cross, buried in a tomb, resurrected from the dead. That's scriptural, that's the biblical Jesus. And that's what we need, a scriptural, biblical Jesus founded on what the word of God teaches us. There are so many versions of Jesus Taught by ignorant people, taught by wolves, taught by false teachers. There are different versions of Jesus. Well, he didn't really die. He swooned. He swooned and the disciples were mistaken and they buried him while he was still alive. No, no, no. He died. They say, oh, he wasn't raised from the dead. His disciples stole the body. Or they say, no, it's not a physical resurrection. It's a spiritual resurrection. His body wasn't raised to immortality. Jesus did not rise from the dead in the same body that he died in. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses teach. He rose as a spirit creature. And, and the material body of Jesus was taken away by God the Father. And they deny the physical resurrection of Jesus. No, it's just spiritual. He's not really God. He's not really one with the Father. He's more like a small G-God like us. He realized the divinity that's within him. He awakened the Christ consciousness. And we can awaken it. He wasn't claiming that he was God when he said he was one with the Father. No, 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 no. The, he didn't really die. He wasn't really, you know, and there's just all these twists. And let's be scriptural and biblical about Jesus is what I'm saying. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried in a tomb and God raised him from the dead. And that is good news. It's good news for sinners. It's good news for sinners. Christ died so that we can live. His burial was proof that he was dead. You know, the Roman soldier took the spear and he stuck it in his side. Discovered that he was already dead. His back was flogged. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. The nails were driven through his hands and his feet. And as he hung on the cross, the Father in heaven tore the veil that separated us from our Father. And Jesus with a cry, the scriptures, not a cry of defeat, the cry of victory, said, it is finished. And his life was not taken from him. He laid it down. He gave it up for sinners so that we could be saved. And his body, even his resurrected body, the scripture says, still resembles the wounds that he received on the cross at the crucifixion. After he had been raised from, his from the dead, he invited his disciples, Thomas in particular, 
Look at my hands and feet. Touch me and see. Put your hand in my side. In regards to his burial, he was buried in a tomb. We know the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And the tomb was sealed with the wax seal of Rome. It was sealed because the enemies of Jesus knew the Pharisees recognized, even though his disciples were slow to catch it, the Pharisees recognized that Jesus said that he would rise from the dead. And so in order to, in their fear, cover up or to guard the fact that Jesus, they thought, was a liar and maybe his disciples would steal the body, in fear they went to Pilate and we know that that Pilate gave the order to put a Roman guard in front of the tomb. That's 50 soldiers. 50 soldiers. And they, these aren't reserves, man. These aren't like auxiliaries. You know, whatever, blow the trumpet, call them in. These are elite troops. This is a special unit. The Green Beret, like Navy SEAL kind of guys, special guards. And if they failed at the task, we know this. They were put to death, the whole crew of them. The seal on the tomb, if it was broken, Roman policy, Roman law was this, that the person who broke the seal was to be crucified upside down. So serious was it taken, was, uh, the law was this, that if they knew who broke the seal, but they couldn't produce him, they went to his village and they crucified the entire village. No one stole the body of Jesus. No one stole it. There are more people looking for that body than Jimmy Hoffa, you know? The Pharisees, the Romans, some people are still looking for that body. They won't ever find it. If they could have produced the body, they would have. But instead, all anyone has is an empty tomb still to this day. You know, looking forward to going back to the Garden of Gethsemane and visiting the, the Garden Tomb in Jerusalem in February, March there and um, been there a number of times. And uh, yeah, what do you say? There's not a lot to report, actually. It's an empty tomb. <laughs> the garden's really nice. You can see the place of the skull and recognize it. it. It's a wonderful place to worship and recount the story, but in terms of something to see, I mean, it's stone. It's empty. Stone's been rolled away. There's no body because Jesus was raised from the dead. And the scriptures are evidence of the resurrection from the dead. Transformed lives are evidence of the resurrection from the dead. Uh, the scriptures are evidence to the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says this, the third thing that testifies to the fact of the resurrection uh, of Jesus is that he was seen by witnesses after he was raised from the dead. And they tell us the reality of the gospel. Look at verse 5. That he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. The gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John actually do not recount the story of Jesus appearing to Peter. Because there was an individual meeting that happened between the two of them. Let me make that clear. You know, they recount that Peter and John ran to the tomb after the report of Mary Magdalene. You remember? Mary went to the tomb. and She discovered the stone rolled away. And she met the gardener, who she thought was the gardener. And she said, sir, if you've taken his body... Can you tell me where they laid him? And he said, Mary. And as soon as Jesus said her name, she recognized him and her eyes were open and she saw that 
He was alive and she knew that it was Jesus. And she was directed, go back and tell the disciples. And specifically, tell Peter. Out of the 12, besides Judas, I would say this, no one felt worse about their betrayal. Actually, I would rephrase that because I don't think, Judas just um, felt sorry for himself. Peter felt sorry for his betrayal. Peter truly felt the depth of his betrayal. You know, there was a point on that night of the betrayal when Peter had denied him for the third time where the Bible tells us the eyes of Peter and Jesus met and, and, and Peter realized what he had done and he went out and he wept bitterly. And on Resurrection Sunday, somewhere in the timeline of everyone coming and going and all that was happening, Jesus and Peter met. And it's hard to imagine what that was like You know, what it would have felt like for Peter. The Gospel of Mark is actually Peter's account. It's Peter reporting to Mark what happened. And even in that first-hand account of Peter, if there was one Gospel that would have recorded the account, it should have been that one, I would think. But think about it. Mark's account doesn't even record what happened in the whole story between Jesus and Peter where when Jesus restores him and says, Peter, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Mark's gospel doesn't even record that because I think Peter's betrayal and his restoration from the Lord was deeply personal to him. I mean, you probably have stuff like that in your walk with the Lord that's deeply personal. So I don't share this. I don't just, this isn't stuff for other people. It's between me and Jesus. And For Peter, it was between him and Jesus. He had betrayed his master at a level he never thought he possibly could have. And when Jesus met him in the garden, wow, must have been awesome for Peter. Verse 5 goes on and says that then to the 12, he appeared to the 12. Of course, Judas is gone, so it's 11 but the 12 is a name by which the group is identified and that that name never changed, you know, I guess after Judas was gone. They were called the 12. Jesus appeared to them. The Gospels recount that. Paul says in verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I mean, just think about that for a moment. 500 people Jesus appeared to at one time. Likely it happened in the region of Galilee because the disciples and his followers kind of migrated to that region after the resurrection. And it's, it's interesting to note this letter to the Corinthian is written 30 years after the cross. 30 years after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And still at that time, Paul says, most of the 500 are still alive. You know, if you committed murder, God forbid this morning... <laughs> You committed murder, there's enough witnesses here to convict you of that crime if we were all to see it. In fact, you know, it takes just two or three witnesses and their testimony in a court of law and a murderer will be convicted of a crime. And Jesus appeared, not just to two or three, 
to 500 at one time. 500 people. And not only that, 30 years later, when this writ letter's written, most of them are still alive. And so the evidence of the resurrection is, it's indisputable. And of the 500, Paul says most of them are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Uh, he doesn't say they're dead because this is a resurrection chapter. They'll be raised to life. They are absent from the body, but they are present with the Lord and their bodies will be raised from the dead. He says in verse 7, then he appeared to James. James, of course, is the half-brother of Jesus. Same mom, different dads. If you catch my drift. Uh, John 7 tells us that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. There was a time that Jesus declared himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. The scripture says making himself equal with God. Uh, everyone knew exactly what he was saying. So did his mother and brothers. And they came to take hold of him because they believed him to be out of his mind. A lunatic. That's James. Okay, He thought Jesus was out of his mind. Kind of understandable. If I grew up in that house, I'd probably think he's out of his mind too. So when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to James, it's hard to imagine what that scene was like. James discovered that all along, his brother was God, the son of God. I, and I just wonder how James felt after all those years. He thought his brother was out of his mind in the midst of the things that he declared and the miracles that he was performing. Even though Jesus was doing things that no one had ever seen, he thought Jesus was out of his mind. And it's no wonder that when James wrote his letter, the epistle of James, that James talks about the tongue, talks about the things that you say. Because I wonder what kind of things he said about Jesus before he found out that he was the son of God and his Savior, the Messiah. I wonder how James felt after all those years. Thought his brother was out of his mind. And it's no wonder, you know, James said, man, the tongue, it can start a fire. If only I could have taken back the things I said about Jesus. Tongue's the only muscle in the body that comes with a cage. That's James who makes that clear. <laughs> Should he use that cage? And it's no wonder that, you know, he wrote the things that he did. And so just imagine the meeting between Jesus and James, if you would, for a moment. And then realize this. Though James did not believe in his brother before the resurrection, James went on to be one of the most prominent leaders, if not, actually he's, he's called the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We see that in the book of Acts, how prominent his role became. In Acts chapter 15, he has a very important job of, the, of declaring the message of the grace to the Gentiles and writing that whole letter and saying, don't throw the law on top of them. And James became very prominent. In his letter, he wrote about, you know, you think about it, about grace and works, faith and deeds. He wrote about the sin of partiality. He was someone who was who had made judgments and decisions of partiality against the Savior, his brother. He said, man, I had that wrong. Verse 7 continues, it says that 
that he appeared to the apostles, then to all the apostles. Again, the 12. Likely this refers to Galilee. We know that at the death of Jesus, his followers dispersed, they, they scattered. But after word began to spread about the resurrection, they obeyed his command that he had given before his death, and they went ahead to Galilee where he said that he would meet them. And so Jesus appeared to the apostles. Verse 8 says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. This is Paul. And Jesus appeared to me. Last of all, Paul was last in the numerical accounting of Jesus' appearances, but I think he also says last of all because of the value that he placed on himself here as we read this. And his value that he placed on himself and his sense of thinking that he deserved grace. So I'm last of all. Verse 9 here, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. We know the account of Paul on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9. Jesus appeared to him, blinded by the light, knocked off his high horse. He cried out, who are you, Lord? And the answer he heard was, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And Paul says about himself here, he says in verse 8, I was one who was untimely born. It's an interesting statement that Paul says. You know what that actually literally means? He says this, I never should have had life. He's actually saying this, literally. I should have been aborted. If there was ever a child who should have been aborted, I mean, we think of the sin of abortion, and look at what Paul's saying about himself. He says, if there was ever a child that should have been aborted, it should have been me. And he says that because of verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I, I never should have had life because I persecuted the bride of Jesus Christ, Paul's saying. I mean, if you would just look at your Bible for a minute and go back with me to, to chapter 14 and look at verse 1. We looked at this last week where Paul started with this verse 1. He says this, pursue love. And we talked about that word pursuit. That it means, uh, I gave a funny, you know, this Roscoe Pico train chasing down the Duke boys. A hot pursuit. You, it means to follow after so as to capture Roscoe wasn't so good at that. And the Paul, Paul tells us that the church is to pursue love. We, ma we make our aim and we follow hard after love so that we lay hold of love and we capture it. And he tells us to pursue love because pursuing love is not something that comes naturally to me or to you. What comes naturally to you and me is that we pursue self, that we pursue selfish ends, that we pursue our own gain. But by the Spirit, we are called to pursue love, to put Christ first, to put others ahead of ourselves. And the same word in chapter 14, verse 1, from the Greek, from the original language, that is translated pursue, in chapter 14, verse 1, in chapter 15, verse 9, is translated persecute. Pursue and persecute. 
And Paul had a pursuit in his life before Jesus Christ. Before Christ, Paul's pursuit was to persecute followers of Jesus, to persecute the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul made people blaspheme the name at the point of a sword. He imprisoned. He persecuted. Paul put to death followers of Jesus Christ. And he tells us, pursue love. In the same way that I once pursued you and I sought to persecute you, you pursue love in the way that I won, at one time had pursued the church. And when Paul finally came to the place where he saw himself in the mirror and he realized who he was and what he was and what was inside his heart, he said, I, I have no right to live. I have no right to live. Paul had spent years of his life pointing the finger at someone else. Pursuing and persecuting someone else. He'd spent years of his life pointing the finger at others and judging others. And then when he met Jesus, he saw a reflection of himself. He saw in the face of Jesus as he looked at the glory of the Savior how sinful he was in his own heart like Isaiah when he looked on the throne and said, woe is me. Woe is me. Wretched man that I am. And you know, a mirror is always harder to hold than it is to point the finger, isn't it? Easy to point the finger and it's so much harder to hold a mirror and to look at yourself in light of who Jesus Christ is. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this heart of sin? And the solution for Paul was not that he forfeit his life. The solution for Paul's life was not that he be aborted. The solution for Paul is the same solution for you and I, that we be born again. You see, Paul had never actually lived yet. He was dead in his sin. We're going to see this more as the chapter goes on. You know, it's been said this. If you're born once, you will die twice. But if you're born twice, you'll die once. The first birth, birth is a physical birth. The second birth we know is a spiritual birth where we are born of the Spirit of God. Uh, death also is both spiritual and physical. And if a man is born of the second birth, born of the Spirit, though he die, the Scripture says, yet shall he live. And that's where Paul's going to go. We will be resurrected from the dead. And for the one who looks in the mirror, for the one who stops pursuing others, for the one who stops pointing the finger, instead looks into the face of Jesus Christ and beholds his glory, begins to recognize their own sin, he will see, they will see their separation from God, their rebellion. And the good news is this. Christ died for your sins. He was buried and he was resurrected from the dead on the third day. And if you will receive him and repent of your sin and turn from it 
and turn in faith to Jesus Christ and to surrender to him, wave that white flag, accept the work of Jesus Christ, taking a stand in him, holding on to the gospel, he'll hold on you. And you will experience the miracle of rebirth. You will experience the the miracle and the wonder of regeneration. And that's what happened in the life of Paul. The resurrected Jesus appeared to me. I, I should have died for the man that I was. But instead I was reborn of the Spirit. He says in verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Isn't that the line we can all say? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He he starts to have this wrestle with himself as he goes here. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, but it wasn't I, he says. But the grace of God that was in me, whether it was they or or I, sorry, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. I love that line there. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what each one of us can say. You know, I think about the life of Paul. I kind of jealous about Paul sometimes. You know, the scripture says, he's been forgiven much, loves much. <laughs> if there's ever an example of that, it's Paul. He, he saw how desperate he was, how wretched he was in his condition of sin. And he fell in love with Jesus. And he put his hand to the plow like probably no man in history And he seems here to trip over his words as he like volleys back and forth. You see the volley back and forth here? Between um, the grace of God that he has experienced and the work that he does for the kingdom. Let me read it to you again. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Yeah, I'd say this about Paul. As you read that, you see he's like you and I. He's stuck between the sovereignty of God in his life and his responsibility to respond to that. And he's held in the tension. It was the grace. It was, I worked. I did, back and forth. And he's held in this tension. And I would say this, what a wonderful place to be held in that tension to say the sovereignty of God in my life and my responsibility to respond to that. May God hold us in that tension. And so the resurrection, as we we dive into this chapter and and, and next week, we're going to see how this increasingly applies for us in our belief in life and death and what the hope is we have in the gospel. And uh, I invite you to stand with me this morning. Would you stand? As I think about this, I'm going to invite the worship team too. As I think about this passage and we wrap it up, how awesome is the grace of God in our lives? And how awesome is the reality of the promise of of new birth? Wretched people that we are. (laughs) Sinners that we are. The gospel is good news. 
The gospel is good news. Christ died for sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. And my friends, that is substance. That right there is truth that your life can be built upon. A foundation and anchor that will hold and that you can hold on to until you reach eternity. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we thank you for the reality of the gospel. Jesus, we acknowledge this morning that you died on the cross for our sins. You were buried and you were raised to life. And in you, Jesus, when we received you, we were born again. We experienced the miracle of new birth. We realized the reality of the good news. And Lord, we thank you for good news. Lord, I thank you for saving us. I thank you that your cross has been applied to our past. We stand on the cross in the present and we're holding on to it in the future. And God, I pray this morning that if there are those here who have not surrendered their life to you, that today would be the moment in time where they wave the flag and surrender to you. And I want to give that opportunity this morning. And so I just ask that, that each person just, you know, quietly respect your neighbor by keeping your eyes closed and your head bowed. And if you say, man, that's me this morning. I'd like to surrender to Jesus. I hear the reality of the gospel that Christ died for me in my sin to save me. And there is a truth that I can be born again and receive him as my Lord and Savior and be forgiven of my sin. If you'd like to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life this morning, I just get you to get my attention. You can raise your hand or make eye contact with me. And I'd just like to pray with you today. So Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for saving us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in you. Thank you, Lord, that you are ours and we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.